Well, howdy there, folks. It's me, Heather, back with another episode of my Strike Vote audiobook podcast on Substack. Today, we're going to read Chapter 4, Part 2. It's the 15th of January, 2022, and it's a beautiful, sunny, cold day here in southwestern Ontario. So get comfy and sit back, and we're going to start very shortly. Chapter 4, Part 2 Jenna held the phone out on speaker mode so that the others could hear. Hello? A pulse point was throbbing in her temple. She pressed her fingertips against it, then pulled her hair back from her forehead. Hello? Who is this? Never you mind who it is, said the man on the other end. She heard tobacco smoke and whiskey in his voice, his southern accent thick with rage. Immediately her skin began to prickle. You take this horse shit down, you hear me? You need to take the slideshow down, woman, now, or you ain't gonna like what happens to you. Jenna rolled her eyes. She was used to threats. Threats did not bother her. They came to her all of the time behind closed doors from men with pudgy fingers trying to see down her blouse while at the same time pushing her to implement policies that will benefit them financially. And when she wouldn't roll over for them, threats followed. That kind of threat she had learned to brush off. What she was not used to was outright threats from strangers. And the fact that this man was willing to play ball that way told her that he wasn't to be trifled with. No sheep than this, and if not, then he's the wolf. She heard this in her mind and nodded. The thought came in her father's voice, and she was listening. She narrowed her eyes. Let me tell you something. I don't take too well to threats. What are you going to do, come down here? I already called the cops. They're on their way over. Jennings rasped out a smoke and whiskey chuckle. Are they now? Are you sure about that? Jenna frowned. She wasn't, actually. The image came to her again of the chief of police schmoozing it up with Moody, arms draped drunkenly around each other's shoulders, grinning into the camera. The chief had not answered her call. They were getting off topic. Look, it's not too late. You can still be a decent human. You can still call the authorities, tell them what you've done, get them to evacuate the area. You can still save lives. If you do that, I'll take it down. Do the right thing. Warn people, and I won't have to. Gone was the slow, easy chuckle, and in its wake, Jennings' rage was palpable. What you'll do is take that fucking slideshow off the internet and fast, because let's get something straight. We own the cops. We own the whole fucking government. We own more lawyers than the likes of you has ever seen. I make one phone call and the cops ain't coming, dig? Jenna looked around at the worried faces of her friends and felt her stomach muscles tighten. What he was saying felt like the truth. It was outrageous, but she had no doubt that it was true. She leaned forward, determined, weight on the balls of her feet. She had gone into her runner stance, shifting her weight back and forth, ready to move, ready to fight. She shook her head. Nope, no way am I putting up with that. She squared her shoulders. Listen, you piece of shit. I saw your presentation, and I saw what's going on in Wyerton in the news. You're not going to get away with covering this up. Give up. 
go to the authorities and get those people off the bruise and out of the evac zone. If you won't give the order to evacuate southwestern Ontario, I will. Please, I know your kind are ruthless, but will you stop at nothing? She heard the hiss of his breath. Fuck that, he said. You've got 10 minutes to take that website down, and if you don't, I'm going to send the cruelest motherfucker that I know to you. He likes to hurt people, but not just any people. Women, he likes to cut to make them bleed and beg for mercy. You get that website down or you'll be next. She barked a harsh, derisive laugh that hurt the back of her throat. There was a knot of fear back there. There was no denying it, and that laugh had scraped against it hard. The rules have changed, old man. That kind of bullshit is obsolete. Ain't no room here for that kind of thing anymore. You and your friends, you exploiters, your time is done. You're dinosaurs. You want to kill me because I'm doing the right thing? You want to hurt me? Fine. Because what's one life if it saves so many? Maybe that's what I came for. Who knows? The point is, I'm not afraid of you and I'm not taking down anything. Silence on the other end. After a long while, the man spoke. You think I'm fucking joking? His voice was soft and somehow intimate. She felt the hair at the nape of her neck stand on end as though he was breathing the words against her skin. You want to fucking dance? You think you can take me on all by yourself? You know what? Fine. It's on. I'm going to tell him to cut your tits off. You like that, bitch? You want to fuck with me? You better be ready to die. The man slammed the receiver down so hard it clanged in Jenna's ear. There was a loathsome feeling on her skin as though his hands had physically been on her flesh. She looked at the phone, now limp and quiet in her hand, then slammed it on the desk like something poisonous. She hugged her arms across her breasts. She couldn't help it. She felt cold. She felt her eyes fill up with tears. And when she blinked, it spilled them. Mary came and faced her, rubbing her hands up and down Jenna's arms. Oh my God, Jenna, I heard what he said. Are you okay? She was grateful for Mary's warmth, her nearness. Jenna heard herself utter a breathy little sound that was half laugh and half sob. She didn't know if she was okay. In that moment, she really didn't think that she was. Carrie put a hand up for a high five. Dude, Jenna, that was epic. You were tough as nails. You didn't back down one step. I'm glad I got to witness that. You rock. She gave a watery little laugh and looked at him. Really? You think so? Come on, man, don't leave me hanging. His hand was still up. She slapped it. If you say so, Carrie, thanks. She managed to grin. She put her face in her hands and scrubbed them up and down a time or two. Pull yourself together right now. You hear me? Her father's voice again inside of her. She shook her head to clear it. You are not going to fall apart. He wants to dance. Let's do it. She dropped her hands and squared her shoulders. Whatever came next, she was resigned to it, but she was not going to put up with threats like this one. She would not. She crossed to the desk, picked up the phone, and started dialing. Who are you calling? Jay asked. The police. Jennings slammed the phone down, then turned to face his daughter, 
who regard, regarded him calmly from her desk. Do you think we should call Beatrice Fillmore? Have that bitch deplatformed? Beatrice could do it. Take her next to no time. Her and her technocrat buddies own those platforms. Cynthia dabbed at her lip gloss. Jennings thought about it. Of course Bia could do it. That's obvious. But Bia's Cochran's cousin. She'd be nice as pie to me on the phone. But then as soon as she'd hung up, she'd call Cochran and tell him what you did. He chewed it over a little longer. Let's hold off on that for now. Send the fox. That little slut thinks she can take me on. Get a hold of Doucette. Find out where she is and send him there. Cynthia arched a brow and yawned, then turned her attention back to the filigreed silver compact she was using to hide the damage that his hand had done to her face. She narrowed her eyes felinely in the mirror, saw a tiny hint of satisfaction showing in her own eyes looking back at her. Then she swept a delicate ivory powder along the side of her face to hide the red mark. I know where she is. She's at the municipal offices of a town called Mount Bridges, and I already called Doucette. He's already on his way. I sent him out an hour ago. Jennings nodded, a glint of something ugly in his eyes. Good. Find out who we know down there and get him on the cops. I don't want one goddamn uniform showing up at that building for the rest of the goddamn day. We need to buy the fox some time. Cynthia thought for a moment, then said, Fallon. Fallon runs the ring down there. It's where his plant is. Cochran set that thing up for him. That award presentation is today. He's on his way. Jennings nodded, held out his hand. Give me the phone. I'll call him. Cynthia smirked, snapping the compact mirror closed. She put through a call to Fallon and handed her father the phone. Andrew Summers was shaking. He sat hunched in the utilities room with his back against the furnace, knees hugged tight to his chest. His shirt cuffs were pulled down over his palms, shock gray eyes flicking back and forth over the rust-colored smudges on the fabric. Blood, he was thinking. That right there, that smudge on my shirt cuff. That's someone's blood. He had just cleaned up a dead body. He replayed Cochrane's voice, wryly amused on the intercom. There's a mess in the boardroom, he had said. Summers could make some good cash. Summers had walked into that boardroom and smelled the stench of death, gunfire, and blood. His stomach lurched at the recollection, and he'd wondered if he'd ever get that smell out of his nose again. Everybody else from the flag board had gone, and he hadn't blamed them. Fleeing that room was about the only thing that he had felt like doing at that moment. Who wouldn't when the alternative was being trapped in that closed-up room with the reeking body of Lloyd Preston, whose blood dripped off the angle of his jaw to fall in tiny plops on the travertine? Summers' mind had refused at first to accept what his eyes were seeing, but the icy steel in Cochrane's expression told him differently. It was all real. This was a murder, and somehow Summers had gotten dragged into the middle of it. He looked at Preston's body because he couldn't bring himself to look at Cochrane until finally the weight of the big man's stare became more than he could cope with. Dreading it, Summers had raised his eyes to look at Cochrane, who stared back at him appraisingly. Silence hovered in the boardroom, 
broken only by the sound of the fox's breathing coming from somewhere behind him. What's he looking at? Summers remembered, thinking wildly. Inside the neck of Summers' suit, a bead of sweat was rolling down, driving him crazy. And then finally, when Summers couldn't stand the weight of the silence one more second, Cochran spoke. Well, genius, what's it going to be? Mr. Preston here has had a little accident, and you can either help me clean this up, or you'll be joining him. Make the right decision, and you take a bag of cash with you tonight. 50K, that's the going rate. But if you don't like that idea, he trailed off, raising his arm so that Summers could see the Beretta clasped in his thick hand. The gesture had an almost lazy quality at first, until Cochran clicked the safety off and sighted Summers in the scope, which had made things all too serious. You can turn around and walk back out that door right there. Might not get very far going that way, said the fox from behind him. Summers turned his head. Gilles Doucette was standing by the door. He raised his hands and cracked his knuckles loud enough that Summers flinched, and Doucette smiled a cold, dead smile. Summers wasn't widely known for his intelligence, but he knew when he was trapped. He risked a glance at Cochrane's gun hand, close enough that he could see the freckles underneath the red gold hairs on Cochrane's knuckles. Summers swallowed thickly, then he sighed. What do you want me to do, sir? He wiped at the sweat on his face. This is my first time doing anything like this. I don't know where to put him. Cochran laughed, but it was an ugly sound. Some of my associates are coming to take him away. All you have to do is help Mr. Doucette here, get him out the door and to the parking lot and load him in the trunk. Then come back in here and clean this mess so that my boardroom looks as good as new again. Cochran jerked a thumb towards the boardroom door where gobbets of blood and brain had stuck to the mahogany. Some had even slid a little leaving a drying trail of gore behind them. Summers realized dully that if he was really going to do this, to destroy evidence at a murder scene, then God help him, it was better to get to it before it dried. He nodded in resignation, then looked at Doucette. The two of them would have to carry Preston together. If that was the case, then Summers wanted the feet. Squatting, he rucked up one of Preston's wingtips under each of his arms, then looked up expectantly. Doucette rolled his eyes. Sure, give me the heavy end, he muttered. Doucette bent down and hauled Preston up by his armpits, and the two of them half-dragged, half-carried his body towards the door. In all my life, I will never forget the way that man's body sagged and swayed like so much lifeless meat, thought Summers, sitting on the utility room floor. He was crying a little, he couldn't seem to stop himself. He took another swig. It helped a bit. After they'd loaded Preston into the trunk of a black sedan, Summers watched it roll out of the parking lot. Beside him, Doucette rubbed antibacterial gel into his hands. Thanks for offering some to me, Summers thought bitterly. And then the fox's cell phone rang. Hello? The fox was listening to someone on the other end. Summers was close, but not close enough to hear what was said. He had been able to tell that it was a woman's voice, possibly Cynthia Jennings. What's she look like? She fat? 
I don't like the fat ones. Summers heard Doucette say this. He heard a blip sound from the fox's phone. He held it away from his face and looked at it, and Summers saw the picture of a smiling, dark-haired woman pop up on the fox's screen. A hungry glint came into Doucette's eyes. She'll do, the fox had grunted. I'm on my way. The fox hung up the phone and lit a smoke. There was a moment of appraisal as Doucette looked at Summers, holding him with his gaze. You ever tell anyone about what we did, it won't be Cochrane you gotta worry about. It'll be me. You want that? Nope. No, sir, I do not. Rule number one, you don't say shit about what goes on at Flag. And if there are any other questions, please see rule number one. Summers kept his eyes trained on a point slightly to the left of the fox's face as he said this, then gave a small nod and a quick salute. Doucette smirked. Good enough. Doucette took another long pull off his cigarette, then slowly and deliberately ground it out under his boot heel. He turned, climbed into his black Range Rover, and took off, leaving Summers feeling very sorry for the dark-haired woman who had been in that photo. The man was terrifying to be around. Cynthia had sent him somewhere. Summers had figured that much out. And whoever the woman was, Summers wouldn't want to be in her position for anything. Not with that hungry glint in Doucette's eyes. Once he was gone, Summers had resigned himself to following Cochrane's orders. He went back to the boardroom, spent an hour on his hands and knees, and cleaned up the mess. Somehow he got through it. The everyday ordinariness of cleaning products like Windex and Pledge added to the surrealism because a part of him still could not believe that the substance he was using them to clean up was actually someone's blood. When the boardroom was clean, he inspected the path they'd taken the parking lot, wiping up all the bloody drips. Afterward, he sat back on his haunches, beat and dropped his weary face into his hands scrubbing at his eyes. That had been the moment when he'd first become aware of the brown discoloration on his cuffs, someone's blood that he himself had sopped up from the many surfaces it had been spilt upon. I should have rolled him up, he thought, looking at his sleeves again, which made him shudder. A black leather bag fell on the ground beside him. Summers could three... Summers could see through the open zipper the bundles of cash it contained but he couldn't bring himself to raise his face. Beside him, Cochran turned on a heel and walked away. Summers watched his boots recede, and after a while, Summers picked up the bag and took it to the utility room. It was beside him on the floor, along with his intercom radio and a bottle of rum he had commandeered from the hospitality bar. He swigged deeply, a long hiss escaping his lips as the alcohol burned its way down his throat. When he closed his eyes, he saw again the way that Preston's head had bowled when they were shoving him into the trunk of the sedan, and Summers had to swallow to keep from retching. Fuck it, he thought, and tipped the bottle back to swig some more. Anderson sat in his cubicle, with the whole world literally and figuratively crumbling beneath him. After the disaster in the boardroom, he had retreated here, into the same space where he had prepared the presentation just a few hours earlier. 
He'd been so optimistic then, thinking the things he had to say would make a difference, prompt them to act, to save people's lives. He'd been a fool. He'd come back here, defeated, and sunk with a wump into his chair, his legs, like his deflated hope, collapsing. All his work, his careful preparation, the way he'd presented the solution he had proposed, his naive optimism that they would do the right thing and save lives, but they hadn't. And now the millions of people who lived in the evac zone were going to die. It had never even crossed Anderson's mind that Cochrane and his friends would let them. He'd been so blind. Like a cut flower on a hot day, he had wilted when he realized they would not be telling the authorities about the danger. His chance to establish himself as a man the company could depend upon had evaporated. But this was not even a blip on his radar. The lives that would be lost, the catastrophic damage to the lakes, the world's fresh water supply. These things were all that he could think about. In the boardroom, these thoughts had ballooned to life inside of him, then shriveled down again when Cochrane made his position known. But then Lloyd Preston had stood up. Bitterly, Anderson recalled his brief and short-lived flare of hope. Yes, he thought. Yes, Preston. Because while in that room, Lloyd Preston had been a laughingstock, with his penchant for booze and lascivious women, he was still a major player on the world stage. He was a UN ambassador. He was connected. And Anderson knew that Preston could make people listen to what he had to say. But Preston was dead now, and Anderson knew that his hopes were defeated. He felt the tears well in his eyes. He'd never felt so hopeless in his life. He'd made the biggest mistake of all broken the first rule that his father ever drilled into his head. Stephen Arthur equated life to a poker game and never underestimate your opponent was his mantra. Anderson had done exactly that, assumed a basic level of human decency still beat in Cochrane's heart, and he'd been proven wrong. And my own father went along with it as well. They all had. Every person in that room had made the decision to play ball with Cochrane, valuing themselves and their wealth more than the lives of all the humans living in the evac zone, in what Anderson had hoped would become the evac zone, but which was now evidently just going to remain the non-evacuated zone before it sank into the water like Atlantis and the people died, while Cochrane and his friends sat and waited to see what was left that they could profit from. The wrongness of it seared his heart. He looked out the window where a ray of sunlight slanted in through the leaded glass, trying to visualize what it took inside a person to live their life like that. The kind of cold-bloodedness he had just witnessed was how Cochrane and his friends had gotten all their money in the first place. It was how they kept their wealth accumulating, how they built upon it. Cochrane was rich as shit. They all were. They didn't need the money they were making from the fracking. They already had more money than you can spend in 10 lifetimes, each of them, and still they wanted more. They were like machines with open metal maws that chewed and crunched through the planet's land and resources, turning what they swallowed into liquid cash. And the more they swallowed, the less there was for everyone else, and the larger their metal jaws became. 
Today they had shown that it wasn't just land they were willing to chew through and destroy. It was people, millions of human souls viewed by flag as expendable, a price they were willing to pay to protect themselves from getting caught. Anderson had known they shouldn't have been fracking around the lakes. Of course he had known that. But the motivation for that, at least, he had understood. A few hundred thousand years of churning water, grinding rocks to settle deep beneath the sand, taking all that rich aquatic life down with it, had produced some really good quality natural gas. That was a resource that was very attractive, primed for exploiting. And Anderson could see how in some ways it had been inevitable that Flag would go after it. But it hadn't been worth the cost. He could see that now. The basins of rock that held the lakes, cradling them like the chalices of the gods, had been fractured, and no amount of money was worth tampering with something so important and so beautiful. But Flag had sent the drills down into it. They had broken it, and Anderson had been a part of it. He shook his head. And then there's the nuclear reactors. He wasn't a nuclear physicist. He didn't know what would happen when the Bruce went down and the waves washed inland. Hell, he didn't know how much of the Bruce would go down. At the moment, the projected slide line angled close, so close to the power plant that there were bound to be impacts. If the nuclear plant itself was not on the piece of land that slid into the lake, that was one thing. That was bad enough. The displaced water would still overcome it. He had no doubt of that but he didn't know what kind of damage that could do. There was the Fukushima model for that kind of scenario, however, and in that model, the first hydrogen explosion had happened less than 24 hours after the earthquake. But if the plant was on the piece of land that went into the water, he had no idea what that scenario could cause. He kept getting this visual that he'd picked up somewhere, as a kid most likely, where a big cartoon explosion happened underwater and blew all the fish sky high. It would be something like that likely, only much, much worse. He leaned back in his chair and tipped his face towards the ceiling. He'd been playing for the wrong team. He saw that now. Somehow the ever-dangling carrot of his father's affection had always made him quash his misgivings down, ignore that little voice inside his heart, that in the beginning had protested loudly that what he was doing was wrong, but he had silenced that voice down and overruled it until it shrank to a sense of mild dismay that had stayed with him throughout his work with Flag. This morning it was back, and louder than ever. It was all but wailing that covering this up was wrong, but what could Anderson do about that? He laced his fingers behind his head and sighed, then turned his chair a fraction, so that the beam of sunlight coming in through the window fell onto his face. I'm sorry, he thought. He closed his eyes. The warm light filtered through his lids and turned them crimson. I'm so, so sorry. Anderson stayed like this for a moment, taking some small comfort from the warmth and the light, and then the little voice inside his heart spoke up again. It's not too late. His eyes snapped open. A notification sounded from his tablet. Anderson sat forward, feeling his heart start pounding in his chest. 
He clicked the message, a link to a live news feed. Walter Samuelson, one of the doctoral students on Anderson's team, had sent it, entering only two words above the link. It's starting. Anderson frowned, his head cocked to the side. The news feed showed the rock fall in Wyerton, the one where Jim and Norma Olofsson had said goodbye to their good old Buick that morning. The fissure was widening again, the rock fall stronger than ever. He saw the cascade of soil and earth and granite shearing off down the cliff face into the water, the chasm widening, tree roots ripping free of the earth, everything tilting and canting and flowing down into the water. Anderson saw that divide opening wider and knew that it could only mean one thing. The Bruce had begun to move, and sooner than he'd thought. He sat back and watched, fascinated, as the news feed shifted to the inside of a chopper and panned across the whole peninsula from above. There was a line of smoke plumes stretching west, outlining the fault line like a smoking gun, pointing toward the nuclear plant. Fissures could be seen bisecting the landmass, beginning the process of severing it entirely. Once those soft spots, those fissures, connected, once the whole of the crevasse was exposed all the way across from Wyerton to McGregor Point on the west side of the Bruce, the land would let go. This was very, very bad. His mind scrambled to recalculate. If the Bruce had slipped this far already, that meant the rest of it could go at any time. They're standing on a time bomb, he said out loud. There was a small crowd of trapped motorists being held back from the rockfall on the far side of the divide by a handful of frazzled-looking police officers. Anderson looked at their faces and knew that they were all of them doomed. He made a decision. He had to get the message to those people, or at least try to. He had to tell them to get off the peninsula. He opened up Google. He was looking for radio stations on the Bruce when a YouTube link with the hashtag get off the Bruce popped up in his search results. He clicked it and all the blood rushed to his face as the first slide of his PowerPoint appeared on screen. It was out there, slide, his slideshow. A thrill of jubilation coursed through him, followed almost instantly by one of terror. His slideshow was out there and people were watching it getting the message to get off the Bruce and out of the evac zone. This was good. It was good for everyone but Cochrane and for Anderson. That was scary as hell. At that moment, the quad was rolling to a stop on the far side of a field behind the municipal building. Lodi could see the squat gray structure up ahead. Built on three stories, it was wide and thick and blocky, like a Lego building. They were about a half kilometer out, with a field of first-cut hay between them and the building's back service alley. Lodi scanned the fence line, looking for a likely place to cross. There was a tractor entrance to the field a short way from the building, and he banked the handlebars towards it. He drove between two windrows, fragrant stubble crackling underneath the four-wheeler's nubby tires. A flash of chrome caught his eye, headlights coming toward them down the service alley that led to the back of the building. 
Something about that vehicle made him pause. He pulled the quad behind a stand of sumac and cut the engine. A black Range Rover emerged from the service alley and drove into sight. Lodi turned to Wanda and held a finger to his lips. Shh, he whispered. Sound could travel far, he knew, especially with the building's concrete walls to amplify it. He pointed to the Range Rover. I don't like the looks of that thing. There's something suspicious about a vehicle that costs that much money crawling down the service alley. They watched through the sumac branches as the Range Rover wedged itself between the dumpster and the fence line. That's where I would park too if I was trying to stay out of sight from within the building, he thought. Lodi held his hand out. Let me see the camera. Wanda gave it to him. He used the zoom feature to magnify his view of the vehicle. A man got out. He was big and powerfully built with iron gray brush cut hair. The man slipped a sport coat on over his shirt and Lodi saw the telltale crisscross of a holster on his lower back. The man was armed and he had taken the time to camouflage his vehicle. Lodi's every instinct sprang to high alert. There was something shady going on and his gut told him it had something to do with the earthquakes. Aside from that, he felt a twinge of recognition. Who the hell are you, buddy? Do I know you? He thought. Still watching through the viewfinder, he saw the man duck low under a row of ground floor windows. What's he doing? Wanda whispered. He's looking for an ROI, and he doesn't want to be seen. Lodi had reverted into his military dialect by habit. Wanda cocked her head to study him. A mantle of calm and focus had settled over him. Not a muscle on his body twitched. Across the field, the man found a basement entrance. He pulled the handle, but the door was locked, so he continued on. He made his way to the corner of the building, checked every window along the way. None of them were open. He pressed his back against the cinder block wall and drew his gun. Holding it in both hands, he peeked around the corner of the building, then disappeared from sight. Once he was gone, Lodi relaxed. Wanda looked at him. What's an ROI? We're out of ingress, Lodi said. He swung a leg over the seat, getting off the quad. He tucked the camera into Wanda's backpack and held out his hand. He's trying to sneak into the building. Come on, old girl. He winked at her. And just like that, the military bearing fell away. And he was once again the neighbor kid she'd known since childhood. The rest of the way, we go on foot. So we'll leave it there for today. And when I come back tomorrow, I'll be starting on chapter six. And I just want to say again, thank you for listening. And uh, wherever you are in this world, uh, I just want to send you good energy and positivity and uh, stay free. We'll talk again. Bye for now.